why classical reception? I, I, I am very aware that for a number of you, um, some of the material I'm going to talk about today uh, would absolutely not have been taught uh, within the classics faculty in your day. Mm. If it was taught at all, it might have happened um, in Wellington Square in modern languages. Um, it might have simply been confined to an after-dinner speech. And I hope I'm going to convince you today um, that it should happen in the classics faculty here in Oxford. Um, I'll give you an example, uh, and a few examples at the very beginning of, of my talk, of the kind of things that students, the material that students have worked on. This is what undergraduates who I've been teaching this term um, might have thought about. Um, at the top, you have a couplet from Michael Longley, uh, an extraordinary, chiselled, beautiful piece of writing based on Iliad 6, called The Parting. He, leave it to the big boys, Andromache. Hector, my darling husband, och, och, she. Now, that is so interesting, not least, and perhaps above all, I mean, you know, the Ulster English notwithstanding, the separation between the personal pronouns, the he beginning as it might be like a kind of stickamuthic exchange, but actually not coming until the end, marking a kind of half rhyme with Andromache. And students write beautiful uh, responses to pieces of poetry like that. Um, and they do it, sorry, I should really say, on the 20th century or the reception uh, option that's available in the final year here uh, for greats and classics and English students um, alike. Um, and it's reception of Greek and Roman literature and poetry in English since 1900. And then I have to include um, another um, example, a rather more indirect reception, but of course Leader and the Swan, of W.B. Yeats, and call your attention to a shudder in the loins engenders there the broken wall, the burning roof, and tower, and Agamemnon dead. And in this extraordinary, powerful, terrifying account of the rape of Leda by Zeus, we have <coughs> energy unleashed, of course, across time, across place. Um, but perhaps rather more surprisingly, uh, some of my graduate students have worked on different things. I hope you can see this is um, actually Martha Graham uh, lying on a, an extraordinary piece of sculpture by uh, Noguchi, um, an amazing uh, Japanese sculptor that she worked with. This is from um, her reworking of Sophocles' Oedipus, um, or the OT, in 1947 called Night Journey. Um, one student from the MST, who's actually a very strict philologist, um, has decided to look at how prescient Martha Graham is, how in many ways she keeps um, Greek tragedy alive in that post-war period, um, particularly in her understanding of the chorus. So that's a, an unusual example. This <laughs> is um, Aubrey, Aubrey uh, 
or Beardsley's um, lithograph, famous one from, um, I think, the 1895 English edition of Salome. Um, I've got a, a doctoral student who's working on Wilde and the classics, and particularly looking at, <coughs> um, at the moment, Salome, and its relationship between, uh, with the Oresteia, and also the Bacchae. Um, so that gives you a, a flavour of the activities here. And I think it's very important to stress that the work that I've referred to here is maybe from the 20th century, the 21st centuries, but it is of a kind with the reception, um, and there's an enormous amount of it, um, of, of, of the reception that's been done um, on work in antiquity, late antiquity. So we consider here, and the MST is structured very much to understand that reception is not something that is confined to appropriations of ancient material in, in, in the very recent past, but that what someone is doing when they're working, for example, on reception of tragedy in the fourth century BC is on a continuum with reception um, of the likes of, of, of this work. Now, I, I want to try and show you what reception can contribute to modern literary studies. I have been told before um, that, in some ways, classicists who work on classical reception are like midwives. They are really engaged in an activity, um, a kind of birth, a rebirth, in a way of classical learning, that will eventually be passed on, I will pass the child of classical reception, on to its rightful parents, i.e. people who work in modern literary departments. Sorry, I say specifically literary, because obviously um, that's the angle, or the end um, of reception that I, I work on. However, I want to show that what classical reception can offer is a kind of dialogue with modern literary studies. And... This week, I was at UCL um, speaking to um, a, a group of early modernists, and I have to say I'm not an early modern specialist, um, in their Centre for Early Modern Exchanges. And I realised how important um, the contribution that classical reception scholars can make or how, it, how necessary it is. Uh, and so I've decided to, in a way, jump into what has become a kind of current spat, um, and I do so with some caution. Uh, for those of you who, who read the letters page of the TLS, you will realise that at the moment Michael Silk, uh, Brian Vickers um, and Colin Burrow are engaged in some uh, sort of <coughs> spat of sorts, perhaps, but a dialogue about Shakespeare and the Greeks, how much of the Greeks uh, were, or can we allow in our discussion of Shakespeare? And, and Michael Silk, for one, argues that what we need to think about is affinities. I would suggest that if we also speak to people working in classical reception, we can perhaps underpin affinities with new evidence that's emerging. And in the archive of performances of Greek and Roman drama, where, where, uh, which is the research project that, that I direct, um, we've started a translation project. Um, we're looking to document all translations of ancient plays into Latin in this period, but also in the vernacular. 
And I suggest if we look more closely, as very often early modernists working in English studies have not, at both the Latin translations that were available from the 16th century onwards, and also if we look at the equally importantly and perhaps more importantly at the vernacular translations, we may get a very different picture. So, <laughs> it's often assumed that Clytemnestra in um, the tradition uh, and definitely right until the 19th century is the Clytemnestra that we get from Seneca. It is only, it is argued, in the 19th century that we can see and understand the full force of um, the husband's laying, the, the viricide um, that is Clytemnestra, or that we can take it on board. Um, and of course, in the iconographic tradition, um, we can see here, um, and this is um, a woodcut um, accompanying um, uh, a Senecan text, we can see, of course, that Clytemnestra is here, yes, committing viricide, but with Aegisthus. In other words, the partnership is always important. And here, this is Alfieri, the Italian um, uh, uh, playwright who rewrote uh, the Agamemnon um, at the end, en end of the 18th century. We can see here, this is Clytemnestra with her, her, her sword. Um, and we can see that this must be Aegisthus, and this must be... Um, a nurse um, who's, who's also um, here trying to deter her. That is clearly um, East, uh, not Iskalian. However, this is, now we're with Flaxman, we see uh, the Iskalian, uh, this is John Flaxman, these wonderful uh, engravings that were, of course, reproduced throughout the 19th century. And here, Clytemnestra with her axe, finally, she enters the tradition. <laughs> However, <laughs> when we look at the early modern period, we have a very different Clytemnestra. And we have a very different Clytemnestra because of the available Iskalian text. The Aldine text, the uh, Editio uh, Princeps of the Oristia, printed in Venice in 1815, is not the Oristia as we would recognise it, but in fact, it's a two-part play. It's no longer, well, it's not the trilogy. It is um, Agamemnon, lines 100 to 310. And then, as you can see, there's this massive gap. <coughs> picks up at 1067 um, and goes to 1159. And then the Coifery, which begins at 9-11, and many of you will know that the only reason why we know the beginning of the Coifery is because um, of Scolia on Pindar and Scolia um, on, on uh, Euripides. So what do we have here? <coughs> we have the Watchman, we have the Paradox, we have the Beacon scene, we have Clytemnestra and Cassandra, much truncated, um, and her vision of the offstage murder of Agamemnon, and then, extraordinarily, we jump to Agamemnon's tomb, i.e. the beginning of the Coifery, the recognition, and then, if you like, the pace gathers, as it does, of course, um, in the Coifery proper, the nurse, the plot, 
the murders and the madness. And then we have the entire Eumenides. Now, why is this important? Well, first of all, we need to wind back. And um, <coughs> how was um, this text disseminated? Um, <coughs> first of all, you can see um, Turnev's edition of the Greek text in 1552 is also this corrupt edition. Um, of, of, of the Aldine text, again, a two-part text. And very importantly, point number two, it then is translated by Jean de Saint-Ravi Saint into Latin in 1555 in Basel. That translation, being based on Turnebs text, text, reproduces the condensed, the corrupt version and most importantly, and we realise how these corrupt texts get into circulation, it's then published in Paris in 1614 um, in Pierre de Rovier's parallel Greek and Latin edition. So this 1614 text is in Johnson, Ben Johnson's library catalogue. We therefore have an Oristia that we wouldn't recognise as an Oristia that um, is in circulation. How did this happen? I mean, the, 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 the first edition of, of 1518 uh, is based on a 10th century manuscript, and obviously, um, which uh, 10th century, the earliest manuscript, the, or the Oristia, referred to as M, which is based in, in, in Florence, that had been bought from Constantinople in 1423, like so many of these texts following um, the sack of Constantinople, brought to Italy uh, for the great um, collector Niccolo Niccoli. Um, we have no complete text, or it's not corrected, um, until some five years after Turnebs' edition, until 1557. It's corrected um, because... Finally, um, there, amongst um, various manuscripts um, of the Euripidean Electra, the full Aeschylean text um, is discovered by Pietro Vittori and, and, and his, um, his, his fellow uh, scholars. Um, and then, finally, Vittori uh, in Geneva in 1557 is able to publish... Um, the three plays as complete plays um, and he argues that there were indeed the Oristia consisted of three plays because amongst the Electra of Euripides he's found the manuscript of Aeschylus with the missing lines but in a way that's too late because and this is really my point Turnebs text, Turnebs edition and the Saint-Ravi translation um, in the para-Greek and Latin text is, sorry, it's all over um, the scholarly libraries of, of Europe for those, of course, who read Latin but whose Greek requires, um, at that stage, a parallel text. So, 
I want for a moment to think about what Oristia did those readers of the parallel Greek and Latin text have. What is missing? Well, um, famously, and most importantly, all of us, the carpet scene, the tapestries. <coughs> and of course, before that, we know there's no first Stasimon, there's no herald, but particularly, and perhaps most revealingly, there's no carpet scene. I've already said that we have a truncated Cassandra scene, but equally importantly, as importantly, um, the absence of the carpet scene, we have no <coughs> echiclema. We have no uh, extraordinary speech from Clytemnestra when she relives terrifyingly before our eyes um, and reenacts even more chillingly, the murder of Agamemnon. And of course, in turn, when at the end of the condensed coiffury, in turn, we therefore have no parallel to draw upon when Orestes appears with the corpse um, of his mother at the end of the second play. So how... What kind of play, then, does it feel without the Stas first Stasimone, without the Herald, without the carpet scene, the truncated Cassandra, and the no echiclema scene? Well, in a way, um, and it, it feels somewhat more Senecan. It's very lugubrious. It has, of course, the Twilight Watchman. It has the Beacon Speech. It has Cassandra's visions of the ghosts. It has <coughs> a central scene now in the graveyard around the tomb of Agamemnon. And uh, some of you may well know um, <coughs> that, of course, there are, has been argued, there are parallels with, with, with Hamlet um, here. Um, uh, in, 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 there's a kind of proto Oristia, perhaps lurking behind Hamlet. Um, but particularly, that has been argued, because there are two lost plays attributed to Deckel and Chettle, both dated to 1599, one called An Agamemnon and another Orestes Furies. And it has been suggested that perhaps the Saint-Ravi Latin translation um, may well somewhere lurk behind them. So on the one hand, it feels more Senecan. On the other hand, it is less overtly political. It's less now a play about justice than a play, perhaps the first part anyway, a play about exile and dispossession. Now the indifference of Apollo is absolutely foregrounded. Apollo's cruelty to Cassandra and Apollo's cruelty in demanding this of Orestes. In some ways, of course, it becomes Orestes' own play. There is no Agamemnon. He does not appear in his name play. But having said that, it also becomes a play that gives more space to Electra, because Electra is now in that central scene. And like the Euripidean Electra, and like 
um, the Sophoclean Electra, she actually learns very quickly how to act in this condensed, uh, now even more uh, speeded up play. But above all, it's Clytemnestra who's changed. Because, of course, we no longer see Clytemnestra luring um, Agamemnon onto the tapestries and into the house. And above all, as I've said, we don't have this extraordinary scene. She becomes, therefore, <coughs> much more sympathetic. Now, again, many of you will know that in some ways the most important um, of the Greek plays um, available in translation, uh, in Latin translation and also in vernacular translations, particularly French and Italian translations uh, in the 16th century, perhaps the most famous one and indeed famous in England because it was translated into English, the Iphigenia in Aulis, which was translated by Jane Lumley uh, sometime, the, the date is disputed, but sometime in the, the 1540s. What has happened here now is that we have a Clytemnestra who resembles much more the Clytemnestra of uh, the Iphigenia in Aulis, the Euripidean Clytemnestra. This is a Clytemnestra who is much more maternal, less problematic, less absolutely deviant as she is in the Aeschylean tradition. Recently, there's been some work done by those who have a background in classics and English in this period. And what they're beginning to see is that there is a mismatch between our expectations um, of uh, uh, what we imagine um, given the availability of the Greek texts uh, at this time. And those texts include the Iphigenia analysis that I've mentioned, um, uh, the Alcestis, the Trojan women, the Phoenician women, the Medea, one Sophocles play, the Antigone, and especially, and perhaps the paradigmatic tragedy um, of, of this period, uh, and that is the Euripidean Hecuba. And what people have begun to argue, and in fact in a really ingenious article by um, someone who spent some time here in Oxford but is now uh, back in the States called Tania Pollard, is that the Hecuba is lurking behind Hamlet. I mean, I, I've suggested already that the Oresteia is there, and I think in terms of plot it is, but that the Hecuba is. And what Pollard argues is that Hamlet is shadow boxing with Hecuba because, of course, what Hecuba does is she draws on her grief in order to find strength to execute extraordinary triumphal revenge. And of course, Hamlet is trying in his world to find all those forces, that power, and to reconcile it with the world, the world of Wittenberg, if you like, where in fact, we also know Hecuba was performed um, in, in that university city. Um, he's trying to reconcile that with new codes regarding revenge. And so if Pollard and her colleagues are right, we have 
women and particularly grieving mothers um, at this period um, emblematizing tragedy and being able through their grief and of course we know this is not a, anything new of course to, to classicists we know how powerful the lament was in antiquity because we know absolutely that the legislation in the 5th century which removed women from 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 uh, the funeral, the, the funerary legislation that was designed above all to stop the power of the lament um, occurring in public um, spaces. We know then that this argument um, is plausible. Now, if Pollard and her colleagues are right that Hecuba is there um, as the archetype of, of tragedy in the period, I'm suggesting that if one goes back to look at the translations, to look at the transmission of the text, and in this case, of course, the corrupted transmission um, of um, an ancient text, one can begin to realise that, of course, Clytemnestra equally fits in to this wider view of tragedy in the period. And I suggest that those people who speak about Seneca as being the only model at this time need to do two things. One, they need to actually recall that Greek tragedy was the prior uh, paradigm of tragedy. And in fact, the Senecan turn, and those of you will know that Seneca doesn't get translated till about 1560 onwards uh, into English. Um, and actually, if you look comparatively across the European vernaculars, you find it that that's the case. Um, and those people who argue that it's the Senecan model that dictates the reception of Clytemnestra across and well down into the 19th century, bearing in mind, of course, that Aeschylus does not get translated into English until at least, well, into English until 1780s, so incredibly late that there are therefore in circulation, not strictly speaking, Senecan Clytemnestras, but in fact, Aeschylean Clytemnestras that just don't resemble the Clytemnestra that we would recognize today. So I hope, I just, I'll stop there, but I just do hope you can see that classical reception and particularly, obviously, those who know much more than I do about the history of classical scholarship have huge amounts to contribute to modern literary studies, um, not least because um, it is precisely as a, as a classicist that you are able, I think, to synthesize, you're able to bring together the scholarship, the intellectual history, and in my case, I work on theatre history, and really attempt to get a rather bigger and above all, not um, a view of Europe bounded by language or geography, because, of course, the best thing um, about classics is that it never respects geographical or linguistic boundaries. Mm -hmm. So thank you.